Hello, and welcome to the Flame Podcast, where we explore the future libraries, archives and museums in excavation. I'm Laura Wilson, former Clear Postdoctoral Fellow at Fisk University, Nashville, Tennessee, and thank you for joining us today. In this podcast, we analyze the interviews we conducted with those who work in the cultural heritage world of museums, libraries, galleries and archives, as well as scholars who are also a part of that world. In our first four episodes, we analyzed two different interviews. In the upcoming episodes, however, we are trying to do something different. We'll be focusing on single interviews while still highlighting prominent topics of BIPOC representation in academia, BIPOC representation in archives, museums, galleries, and library spaces. We will continue to look into the issue of sparse representation and misrepresentation. And we will continue to talk about examples of representation and collaboration with Indigenous nations, which is the subject of today's episode. Our guest today is Darren Ranko, citizen of the Penobscot Nation and professor of anthropology at the University of Maine. His work rests on the exchanges between Indigenous and Western science, and he focuses on law and the environment. Darren is a board member of the Wabanaki Youth in Science, WAYS, or WAYS program, that aims to get Maine native youth to bring Wabanaki science into Western science through programs and internships. This program aims to empower native youth to manage the cultural and environmental heritage of their communities. A quick note before we start, just that this recording is from mid-June 2021 and was therefore originally recorded during the pandemic over Zoom. Additionally, you might hear Darren's dogs a few times during his segments. We apologize for this sound quality in advance. Here we have Darren in his own words. My name is Darren Ranko. I'm a Penobscot Nation citizen. I'm chair of Native American programs and associate professor of anthropology and coordinator of Native American research at the University of Maine. Um, I've been on you know, the board of the Abbey Museum and, and worked in sort of these, these spaces between archives, museums, libraries, and indigenous intellectual property off and on for the last 20 years. Um, but uh, it really took hold when I came back to Maine as a, in my current job, pretty much in my current job in 2009, where I was able to continue this work um, directly with my tribal nation, the Penobscot Nation, um, being, which is only five miles from the University of Maine. So we, ha we have this great network uh, of space to do this work, um, which, which uh, really meets sort of community interests and needs, but also kind of building into university and sort of library museum structures. Sadly, I um, still haven't had a chance to go up to Maine. I, I wanted to see the changes the Penobscot Nation brought to the University of Maine campus at Orono and the changes the libraries are experiencing as a result of that collaborative work. I couldn't see any of those with my own eyes, and I regret that. I hope our listeners might get a chance to go there, though. And in the introduction piece that we listened to just a couple of seconds ago from Professor Ranko, he mentions that the university and the Penobscot Nation are only five miles apart. Both the nation and the university are remarkable in terms of building a relationship with one another. One of the key documents showing the efforts made in that direction is the 2018 MOU, which stands for Memorandum of Understanding, signed between the Penobscot chief and the president of the University of Maine. 
Members of the Penobscot Nation, archives, libraries, especially Professor Renko, played a key role in mobilizing networks that led to the creation of that document. For me, the conversation highlighted the importance of the presence of indigenous faculty and their allies and the essential role they played in establishing meaningful relationships between tribes and the University of Maine in this case. Hopefully, such an MOU with appendices can really lay out in detail the groundwork between an indigenous nation and a land-grant university. An MOU between a sovereign tribal nation and a university may not necessarily be that rare, but a detailed one such as this is much less frequent. There are two main connected points in today's interview. One is about building relationships between academic libraries, universities and tribes, and the other is the legal institutional frameworks that constantly hamper those relationships from forming. The 2018 MOU that Darren talked about demonstrates those things in tandem, and I'm excited to delve into finding out more. In looking at an example of how universities could form relationships with nations and vice versa, we'll cast a glimpse into the roles that libraries, archives, museums and galleries could play in that. Yes, and that's a topic that has been high on my mind as I see a struggle at my own institution, MIT, especially from the side of indigenous students trying to get MIT to form a relationship with the local indigenous communities. I'm particularly interested in what libraries can do in that regard. And that was uh, partially why I wanted to talk to Professor Ranko to understand what that works looks like. Professor Ranko talks about a lot of things, indigenous people, places, health, indigenous science, and none of these things being a priority. And that's what I hear loud and clear in my world too. So I do sense a pattern that requires a community supported a sustained effort to break. Here's Professor Renko again. As an anthropologist, uh, my PhD is in anthropology, but I have a degree in environmental law from Vermont Law School. Um, you know, it was always about our places and sort of what is happening that starts out in early in my career, sort of trying to understand that um, our places as indigenous people are not being protected in the way that other places are. In particular, if you take into account our cultural practices across the landscape. So my dissertation, my early work was really trying to, on the one hand, track the sort of uh, increased exposure to environmental risk that we as Indigenous people face because of our cultural practices. So looking at traditional practices on the landscape and sort of how pollution is impacting our health as, as tribal people. And then asking the broader policy questions of how do we make this better. Darren touched upon why his tribe and other indigenous tribes face all kinds of societal barriers because of their cultural practices. The risks they face are the outcome of intentional policy decisions, systemic decisions. Here's just one statistic. According to the Consortium for Student Retention Data Exchange, CSRDE, Native student college enrollment data is around 1%, while the national average is above 60%. If that role is not the result of policy decisions across generations, I don't know what is. So how did this intentional discrimination begin, and how was it justified over and over during the centuries? Let's listen to Darren. That's a great question, and there are so many 
great frames and sort of responses to it. Um, you know, of course, it become it 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 comes from you know the, the doctrine of uh, Christian discovery and domination. I think is sort of the first sort of structural space we can see that where uh, indigenous uh, peoples are created as other uh, uh, through the notion of Christian nations having a supremacy over non-Christian peoples, um, but that quickly becomes, you know, a series of justifications and uh, around uh, colonization and, and, you know, the chosen land, chosen people <laughs> sort of frameworks that uh, come with this religious supremacy, which, you know, quickly get attached to um, various forms of white, white supremacy. Um, so I, you know, so I think that's where the structures of that come from. What interesting parts of that become, um, in a certain framework of European uh, thought where the wilderness becomes uh, also tied to this otherness. Colonizers and other dominant groups in power really believe in the superiority of their knowledge systems inherently, and they suggest that this demonstrates the superiority of their race over that of native knowledge systems and native peoples. Colonizers were so confident in their own belief systems that they misread I will throw in a new word here, the techno-signatures that were all around them. This term comes out of the rich debate in the astrophysics world, now fired up by the data that Webb Telescope sends to Earth, about what parameters to use to detect intelligent life forms. The debate essentially focuses on how do we know, and what criteria do we use to detect the evidence of intelligent life forms. It's an amazing debate and we're putting the link to the transcript of this episode on our website if folks want to listen to it. There are some important parallels here, like the colonizers came to the Americas and they saw wilderness around them and land. The savages, which is what they called the indigenous peoples of these lands, left uncultivated. They did not or could not read the native techno-signatures. Let's turn to Professor Ranko again. Notions of danger, um, defining a place as wilderness uh, and as other, uh, not under con human control. Um, this distinction between human and non-human um, um, within this certain frames of European thought where the indigenous other becomes part of the wild wildlands and not, not properly managing our lands um, in, in ways that Europeans see fit in, in terms of you know, it gets caught up in all this stuff with lock and improvement and property, but all these frameworks become exclusively tied to European and white uh, supremacies uh, and religious supremacies. So, um, you know, with that model, we have, you know, a, a framework and justification for, um, you know, clearing out the wild other uh, across colonial spaces uh, to make way for settlers. And then also it, it creates the justifications for um, waging war on both the wilderness and the people who are now constructed and attached to it. I mean, this is all, these are all fairy tales and stories that Europeans created. Um, William Cronin's book, Changes in the Land is a really good sort of be beginning ground to sort of say like, you know, in fact, indigenous people were actively managing our landscapes here in New England. And, and he makes differentiations between Northern and Southern New England. And I think that's probably accurate in terms of the, the, the different kinds of roles that agriculture and lar larger scale agriculture have more so in Southern New England. But even then the, you know, 
uh, European reports that they were walking through these pine forests that that were like parks uh, when they arrived in the New World were were not by the grace of God, but by hundreds of years of indigenous uh, land management schemes, which included, you know, ways of, of using fire and, and other techniques for land management. Belief and knowledge systems were based on the made-up idea of superiority of white Europeans. Also, the laws and science were used to justify the same myths, correct? Absolutely. The legal system to get another means to grab land from indigenous people and to eliminate their existence. At its roots are laws like the Phipps Proclamation of 1755, named after the governor of Massachusetts Bay. Note that until 1820, Maine was still part of Massachusetts, and this proclamation literally put bounty on the scalps of indigenous adults and children. In fact, it directly targeted Ranco's family, his ancestors. Let's hear in his words the impact of this tragic history. You know, in Maine, we have, of course, the Phipps Proclamation hunting us down for our scalps and uh, the money for which was used to then purchase lands, our, our previous lands, which had been, you know, stolen in other means. So, it, you know, we, we pay doubly and triply for these extractive uh, land takings that, um, you know, extend to our children. We're, we're doing this interview in the aftermath of uh, the bodies of children at, at, at residential schools in Canada being found, the taking of our children, the, ta- the extrapolation of our natural resources and our and eventually our cultures as well. And that's where the epistemicide, you know, by cutting off our relationship um, to these places through colonial land policies and so oftentimes destroying them as Cronin talks about, you know, monocultural, uh, you know, uh, monocultural farming and and domestication of certain animals leads to act- the actual destruction of our ecosystems that we we tried you know for hundreds and thousands of years to create. You know all these things become part of the the taking and occupation of indigenous peoples and lands. You know we can see history as a sequence of events that happened in the past between groups of people, but when we do that, history potentially becomes a sort of heavy fate that can't be avoided. Instead, when I was talking to Darren Ranko, the focus was on the intentionality of history. We can see history as a set of conscious choices made by people that permeated all aspects of life. And when the focus is on intentions, then history itself takes off that heavy cloak of fate, to some degree, of course, and people have the agency to change things, to include other narratives. I like this interpretation of history. History not as a force that forces us to repeat certain patterns, but as something for people to learn from in shaping their world with intentions. Absolutely. Now, the highlight of your conversation with Professor Ranko is, as we've mentioned before, this Memorandum of Understanding that was signed in 2018 between the Penobscot Nation and the University of Maine. And this is just a great example of history as empowerment, doing intentional, respectful work. However, the history of Penobscot Nation's relationships up to that point with the federal government and the state of Maine is one in which the powerful institutions did everything they could to strip the Penobscots of their land, traditions and rights. Before we talk more about the 2018 MOU, let's focus on the Maine Indian Rights Claim Settlement Act of 1980, as Darren discusses it here. Just in the context of Maine, though, like, um, and we've been doing more work on I think thanks to the the Hamilton musical, maybe we have the sense that the founders were basically a bunch of land speculators, 
<laughs> so, and where were they getting their land from? Indigenous people. And uh, what were they speculating, you know, selling it, <laughs> claiming it and selling it to a bunch of other people so they could build their wealth, um, often through slave labor. Uh, so we have that sense of the structure of it, but even at the time of the founding of the state of Maine, we have a similar kind of dynamic. These are basically the founders of our state are almost half are directly involved in land speculation. The other half are judges and professional people who kind of make their wealth off of the systems that support this land speculation. The land speculators are um, just um, so driven by at this moment in 1820 with the, 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 the founding of the state of Maine, you know, some of the first things they do is they survey our lands as Wabanaki people, and then they create these laws in 1820 and 1821 regulating Indians, even though in the state constitution, it, there's sort of elements where they are supposed to recognize the previous treaties and, and um, also see Indians as uh, pe people with our own sources of political and governmental legitimacy. So as soon as the state of Maine was founded in 1820, land speculators flooded the state and they did everything in their power to take away indigenous lands. They violated treaties, made up documents, weaponized taxation, and ended up violating a federal law from 1790 called the Non-Intercourse Act that gives the right to make treaties with tribal nations only to the federal government. So the state of Maine could not make agreements with tribes. If they were made, they were considered null. One of the first laws passed by the United States was the Non-Intercourse Act, which basically meant that the federal government could only um, make treaties and, and agreements with, with tribal nations. So basically there are a series of treaties with Massachusetts and Maine made after 1790 that formed the, the legal basis <clears throat> for uh, land claims that um, really only uh, come to a head um, starting in the 1960s. Part of it is, as many of these situations happen, the political uh, and legal opportunities for for Native people become uh, possible at times when, you know, in the aftermath of civil rights and, and also um, in uh, Wabanaki indigenous people from Maine uh, traveling, being part of the service and uh, gaining access to uh, various forms of political and, and legal power. Um, so there's a series of land deals that are happening in the, in over in the, the Passamaquoddy's in the, in the 1960s that, you know, in previous times, they, it looked just like the all the old things where they would just call some some land something else and then the state would come in and take it and just be like uh sometimes in the past th would uh they would charge the tribes um like fees to get rid of the land anyway they got us coming and going um but in the 1960s because of different you know contexts of political and cultural power uh the Passamaquoddy tribe and then later the Penobscot nation uh, were able to lobby and engage with the federal government, the, specifically the Department of Interior and Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, reach out to them and say, you actually have this unique responsibility to us as the federal government called the trust responsibility um, to help us with this land dispute, um, which is basically you know, seeking to take at the time, it was just directly Passamaquoddy lands. Um, the federal government balked and said, no, you guys have been with the state for so long. We're not sure we actually should get involved. Darren says 
they got us coming and going from roughly the 1820s to the 1960s until tribes started reminding the federal government of its responsibility, a costly and cumbersome legal process that lasted until 1980. And when I think of that process, I want to remind everyone what the intention of the federal government and the state government was, right? And clearly the goal was dispossession of tribes using legal avenues. If you look at the language of the Settlement Act of 1980, the long view is very clear about the intentionality of the legal system. In 1980, the system did not contradict its own precedent, and the decision was made that all of the lands taken after 1790 were taken illegally. And the Penobscot tribe had $81 million returned for the historical theft of about two-thirds of the state of Maine, which is their ancestral lands. In fact, the, the reviewing court also said all these lands through these treaties after 1790 were taken illegally. And that started to cloud the title to um, a bunch of uh, uh, almost two-thirds of the state of Maine, because suddenly lands that were had deeds that were connected to these treaties, uh, the treaties were now illegal. It's so much hard work to change intentions, and there's so much struggle in getting to that point, though. The Settlement Act is very ambiguous, and even to a non-legal eye, that ambiguity is obvious. As we continue to listen to Darren, let's pay attention, though, to the resistance that the tribes encountered after the Settlement Act of 1980, and how their sovereignty was questioned with ambiguous language, as what seemed to be an act of giving was also an act of taking. Then the state and a bunch of politicians started to try to slow down and make so the Settlement Act was not going to happen. And um, it became clear that there were a huge, there was huge opposition, not only in the state of Maine, but in aspect, elements of the federal government, including our congressional delegation, um, that did not want the Settlement Act to happen. It eventually did, but with you know much back and forth and lots of tension, last minute dealings, and some of these last minute dealings become part of um, this ambiguity in the way the Settlement Act was written, which basically has been interpreted to remove or, or limit our tribal sovereignty, even though most of the tribal negotiators entered into the agreement thinking this was merely a land deal. It was, we were giving up our rights to two thirds of the state of Maine for monies to purchase lands in, uh, in the state that were part of our traditional territories. And that it was merely a land exchange. It was like, we'll give you the, <laughs> the title, the clear title, and then we'll get, it ended up being about $81 million for land purchases back to, into um, our tribal control. But there were all these clauses and stipulations in the Settlement Act, which have been interpreted as limiting our sovereignty similar to municipalities, um, as well as clauses that exempt us from all this other federal legislation um, affecting Indian tribes. Listening to Professor Ranko talk about the process, how in many ways the Act of 1980, even though it pulled a whole indigenous community out of poverty, was a continuation of the centuries-old intentions. That core was still there in the middle. In a way, it's an admission of the illegality of the taking. The state saying that, yes, for about 200 years, we held this land illegally, illegal even within our own legal framework. If you read it, its language is quite bizarre. It's by no means a clean, open admission. 
And I believe that is also a feature of the document's connections with the past. In that sense, it's not a break away from the, that tradition, even though it gives 81 million, as we said, to the Penobscot Nation. Let's listen to Professor Ranko again. And it's funny because, you know, people who are very critical of the land claim settlement process were called upon that history to be like, I'm not comfortable with this. It feels rushed. We don't have a full sense of where it's going. I mean, we, we have people in our communities that have been passing down through generations. The histories are our treaties and these dealings. So, you know, there are these attempts right now in the last few years to correct these um, clauses and misinterpretations from our point of view, um, but there's still these resistances to uh, our work, including with our governor and a whole host of, of other people who have um, a fair amount of control over the, the, the fate of these kinds of legislation. As Professor Ranko and I talked about viewing history as an intentional process and giving the opportunity to all sides to be active participants in forging relationships, I think the real break in replicating harm from the previous centuries is symbolized in the Memorandum of Understanding between the Penobscot Nation and the University of Maine at Orono. It's especially meaningful to me that the University of Maine is one of the 1862 land-grant universities, like MIT, where I work. What the Penobscot Nation and the University of Maine have achieved is an inspiration to other land-grant institutions who have to find their own way to connect with the past and take action with that knowledge. That intentional break from the past has to be visible. On university campuses, as another example, things that mark these sorts of changes in visibility are bilingual signage around campus in Penobscot and English. These signs are on buildings, street signs, the library, so it becomes very tangible. And intentions are declared openly alongside the nine-page MOU that was signed between Kirk Francis, Penobscot chief, and Susan Hunter, president of the University of Maine. The MOU puts this down in clearer language than the past, but it might not be something that communities really look at and consult, in contrast to buildings and signs that they might pass every day. Here's Darren talking more about this type of work. The work is so important, and of course it centers around me trying to mobilize networks as, a, as someone at the University of Maine and um, trying to decolonize, fix, you know, create... Um, and address these ongoing historical formulations around colonialism. Obviously, the, uh, the taking of our people, cultures, resources has these long histories. Land-grant universities are a part of that. Um, please visit Land Grab U if you haven't. Uh, land-grant universities are literally created upon the wealth of indigenous peoples and lands. Um, University of Maine is no different. Um, and that history is multiple in terms of where the grant, the money for the grant for our the University of Maine came from, but also its location on Marsh Island, which is part of these one of these uh, dubious land deals at the end of the 18th century, um, which um, basically extracted the, the, the Marsh Island uh, as a Penobscot uh, key landholding. Actually, our, our name and place is actually uh, on part of Marsh Island. So Marsh Island is very important to us. So that history is involved with other forms of histories, including, you know, the, the histories of, of land uh, uh, property, uh, um, 
uh, land land forms of property, but also intellectual property are implicated in various sort of colonial forms, um, wherein in the history of, of scholarship about indigenous people and the history of intellectual property, where you have on the one hand, um, formulations of culture and expressions of culture uh, of certain groups of people being labeled as traditional and therefore having no copyright or any kind of property protection to them um, through as a traditional form. And then the history of intellectual production vis-a-vis uh, -vis anthropologists and, and um, people who brought technologies like recording musics, them actually being intellectual property holders, uh, not creators of the songs per se, but of, of the expression of those, of those songs and stories and whatnot. So the MOU gives control of the metadata and access to the University of Maine collections that relate to Penobscot history over to the representatives of the Penobscot nation. It defines levels of access, traditional labels, and processes down to the level of CSV file exchanges between the libraries and the tribe. It makes the Penobscot collections visible, just like the campus signage, which we just talked about, which makes their presence and authority known to visitors. It also recognizes the authority of the Tribal Review Board over research involving Penobscot individuals. Overall, the MOU is a landmark document that establishes a respectful relationship between the nation and the Hudson Museum, the library, the university press, and the anthropology department. The Penobscot Nation now has much more control over access, description, and use than indigenous communities have historically been given by institutions in the past. The MOU uh, was formulated um, out of work that we have been doing uh, in, in the tribe for, I don't know, since 2013 or 2014, um, in the most immediate past, uh, trying to get a handle on our archeological resources and the intellectual property. So basically, how do we gain more control over um, the expressions of culture we have in our archeological, you know, things that our ancestors produced um, that are now considered archeological artifacts um, and sort of, building a community-wide network uh, around that work. And Bonnie Newsom, uh, who's now uh, a faculty member in my department in anthropology uh, as the Northeastern Archaeologist Specialist. Um, but at the time, she was the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Penobscot Nation. As Darren speaks, you get a sense of how much it was community work that culminated in the MOU, all working together over decades intentionally to create the underlying conditions that led to the MOU itself. He also mentions Jane Anderson, the co-director of the local context team that created the traditional knowledge labels that the Raymond Fogler Library now uses. These are important steps in the process of involving the Penobscot Nation in the control of their own history and artifacts. In this clip, you will hear Professor Ranko refer to the IRB multiple times. IRB stands for Institutional Review Board, and that is a federally required committee that is responsible for overseeing research involving human participants. Its goal is to ensure that re research participants are not mistreated and that their rights are protected. Given that known structure of problems, the intellectual property and the human subjects problems, and just this 
keen interests of not being misrepresented and um, having others control how we're represented through culture and um, cultural resources. We uh, began a discussion, and this is, you know, someone to talk to about this because she's one of the key players uh, of this work worldwide is Jane Anderson, who's at um, New York University. She's been helping us, um, myself <laughs> at the university, uh, James Francis, who's the director of our Cultural Historic Preservation Department at the Penobscot Nation, um, and just our own sense of where we need to go, um, recognizing that the, the University of Maine um, was very much interested in and had already been developing for, for a decade or two, you know, relationships to make sure, especially through the Hudson Museum, for example, Gretchen Faulkner, who's the director of the museum, had already formulated policies and protocols um, that re um, really recognized Indigenous peoples, Wabanaki peoples' relationships with objects uh, and centered those in the kinds of management decisions. So if someone had said, you know, that that's a spiritually significant or culturally important item, it, um, it makes me uncomfortable if you would loan that out. She would simply would just not loan it out to anyone. It would just be kept. So these, these are sort of relationships that we were starting to build with uh, the IRB too. When I came on in 2009, uh, I was trying to kind of, given my known understanding, and I have an article back from, I don't know, 2005 or six around, you know, this work around research relationships and hunting stories. Um, just, I wanted to kind of get the human subjects IRB people at the university kind of more understanding of the tribal tribal relationship to histories and of research and ongoing um, forms of extractive research. So and we were already starting to kind of institutionalize some of this work and people are very open to um, making it right. Um, I think, you know, the library became the next bigger space for this work. Um, and, you know, that, that, took a little bit more time, but you know that was sort of already being formulated uh, through James Francis's work and, and other people. Um, so I think you know we already had these these parts of the institution recognizing like there are some uncomfortable, unseemly, unethical kind of legacies that we need to deal with in terms of the university's control over certain forms of cultural heritage, uh, Penobscot Nation, but Broad, more broadly, Wabanaki cultural heritage items in terms of the relationships that we want to make uh, and maintain. So it's in that recognition that the MOU, you know, became, you know, started to be drafted in, I don't know, 2016, maybe. It took a couple of years to kind of really formulate, you know, there are different appendices. We, we treat um, sort of the principle of, you know, there should be, the principles that we all agree to is that there's some the colonial legacies that the university kind of benefits from and has serves as its legacy. And the Penobscot Nation has an interest in correcting these along with the university and that we will work together to, to do that. And then we kind of have different elements, IRB, um, the museum, the library, uh, the University of Maine Press, the anthropology department, right? These are all subsections of where this work happens. And so there's appendices, for each of these parts of the university. And we're actually starting to formulate another appendix, appendix uh, based around the collection of environmental DNA uh, across the landscape. And that's going to be the next um, <laughs> big lift for us is sort of what is the relationship between researchers collecting in, uh, DNA from 
past and current environments and sort of Wabanaki places and people in terms of our own intellectual and cultural tradition. The contrast between the 2018 MOU and the 1980 Settlement Act could not have been greater. And of course, lack of a truth and reconciliation process at the federal level is still a huge gap in the United States legislation. Still, the Penobscot Nation and the University of Maine are really stellar examples that can show other institutions and tribal nations a good way of forming relationships. Even the little bit Darren mentioned about the work they're doing with environmental DNA sounded so fascinating. E-DNA studies, biodiversity, sub-environments by examining samples from soil, seawater, permafrost, and etc. The potentials there are endless. The coupling of Western science with indigenous ways of knowing in this work could be groundbreaking and provide so much potential for the future. Completely. This type of work opens up so many more possibilities. For instance, since the publication of the Land Grab You article by Athone and Lee in 2020, there's been a lot more vigour in terms of universities, especially those established as land-grant institutions by the Morrill Act, to say what kind of a future they want to be a part of. Still, sometimes this doesn't go much more beyond the use of land acknowledgements. A noble gesture, but not restorative work that's going far enough. Therefore, I want us to end on what Darren said about land acknowledgement and the attitude at the University of Maine, how the use of detailed MOUs to be forceful and effective in creating understanding between tribal governments and university administrations. They're pretty common, but they tend to be very general in nature. You know, they tend to be, you know, we'll work together on scholarships or recruitment or programs to support them, you know, like students or, or even research in a more general sense. But very few of them go into the level of detail that we're, we're talking about. Impact this board, put, put, you know, put tribal representation. You know, I think some of them do that, but I think we were very, you know, like trying to be very in... Um, specific about the institutional uh, changes. And I think, you know, you know, it's kind of like going beyond a land acknowledgement to a real set of, you know, where in the institution are the, the, the possibilities and structures for, um, uh, for, that we can actually change. You know, words are important. And I think, you know, land acknowledgements are, are about reframing relationships um, and, and, and getting people on the same page to them. But that is still not correcting, you know, it's not correcting the harms and the ongoing legacies of, of harms, you know, mm. created by universities and their land grant histories or any of the other things that we've talked about. So I think, you know, we, we were reluctant, you know, in terms of even publicizing a, um, a land acknowledgement for our campus until we had the MOU signed and we had this signage project, which we, which we have um uh for campus where there's bilingual signage in penobscot uh, mm. english across our campus so to me i was well me and others i work with we were all kind of reluctant to just like let's put these words on a page and then people can say them and feel better about like the, the colonial legacies but we wanted the structural and more permanent legacies of that so the mou the signage you know that that lives on beyond the the, the mm. ether of that of that statement and I think we were very careful to kind of think about it as, you know, one in some ways, one without the other is a little bit hollow. Like, you know, even doing the structural work without the, the visible statement, you know, about it is also a little bit dubious as well. Like we need our leadership 
within universities to say those words and then create the actions and institutional support. What an amazing quote to end on. It really brings together the discussions of today's episode and these ideas about intention rather than fate. History is responsibility and hope. Our thanks to Darren Ranko of the Penobscot Nation and Professor of Anthropology at the University of Maine. You can access the transcript of this episode and learn more about Darren Ranko's work on our website.